Well, good morning. Like Matt said, my name is Michael, one of the pastors here. Um, thanks for joining us today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, all right? If you're unfamiliar, uh, maybe new to the Bible, uh, Matthew's the beginning of the New Testament, all right? So there are four kind of Gospels that are written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that all tell about the life of Jesus. And in this series that we're starting today, about the life of Christ, what a life of Jesus, what a beautiful Savior, uh, we're going to primarily be walking through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, so generally we'll be in Matthew, but as different preachers come and preach uh, from our staff, what we'll do is kind of grab from other Gospels as well, all right? But mostly we'll be in Matthew, okay? So uh, when we think about this kind of series, our hope at the end of each sermon and at the end of this entire series is that you would love Jesus more deeply and that you would follow, have a desire to follow Jesus more closely. As you become more and more familiar with who Jesus is, what he's about, what he's done, the absolute hope is that you go, man, I love Jesus so much more deeply. I want to follow him so much more closely because of who he is. Now, when we think about following people in our society today, it's pretty easy and it's pretty superficial how we can follow people, right? If you want to follow somebody, you can pretty much just click a button, say follow, and then from a distance, you're like, oh yeah, I know that person really well. I know what that celebrity eats for breakfast. I don't know why that matters at all, but you can know that if you wanted to do that, right? You just click a button and like, oh yeah, I know that person a whole lot. You're like, no, you don't. You know, like one, like quarter of their life that they post on social media that doesn't matter and they lie to you the rest of the time, right? Like you don't know them. But unfortunately, I think that's how we operate with Jesus oftentimes too. Oh, I I know all about Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but you don't really know his life. You don't really know who he is and what he was about. So we tend to reduce the life of Jesus into Christmas and Easter stories. But then even in those stories, we kind of miss Jesus, right? We've reduced like Christmas into Santa Claus and gifts. And we've reduced Easter into Easter bunny and Easter eggs. And we miss Jesus in the process. As we take a deep dive into the life of Jesus this summer, and we'll go through kind of all the way into August. I want you to go, man, I really know Jesus. And I can't get enough of him. I want to know him even more and more. So um, if we're really called to follow him, we got to know what Jesus was about. We got to know how he acted. We got to know how he spent his time and what he lived for. And so today, where we're going to start in Jesus' life is the most, what makes the most sense. We're going to start at his birth, all right? So it's Christmas in May today, okay? So uh, we might even sing a Christmas song later, all right? Um, We can do that. We're allowed. Um, All right. So Matthew chapter one um, in Matthew, since we'll be kind of marching through this, let me give you a little uh, insight into this. So the gospel of Matthew written by Matthew. And as he writes it, he's writing to the nation of Israel, to a Jewish audience. All right. Really religious people who were devout and looking for the promised Messiah, the one that was going to save them, the one that was going to rescue them. Now, 
Most of them thought that the Messiah was going to come and rescue them from the Roman government that they were underneath at that point. But what Matthew is doing is saying he's so much more than that. And you've been looking for hundreds of years for this Messiah. And now Jesus has come on the scene and he's the Messiah. So he's trying to prove to them that Jesus is actually the Messiah. All right. So we're going to start in verse 18 uh, with this. So Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So this is how the birth of Jesus took place. And what we're going to learn from the birth of Jesus is about Jesus' identity, who he was, and about his purpose, what he came to do. Now the first 17 verses that we skipped over this morning, in those verses what you have is the genealogy of Jesus from a human perspective. He was coming as the son of David from the lineage or line of King David. And it was show, Matthew was saying, hey, he's, he's a human, all right? But now what we're going to see, starting in verse 18, going through some of chapter 2, is that he was so much more than simply a human. Now we're going to start to see the genealogy of Jesus from a divine side. He was not just fully man, but he's fully God. And this is why, okay? So it says, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. What is betrothal? That's not a word we use very often. It's kind of like a period of engagement, all right? So they were legally engaged, Mary and Joseph were. And the only way you could get out of this engagement was to, through divorce or through death. Now, during this time, Mary and Joseph would have been separated. She was probably living um, at home with her family, and it probably lasted about a year. Typically, that's what would happen, where they were legally engaged... However, there was no sexual intimacy. There was no sexual relationship happening at this time because it was a period of testing. So during this time of testing, when they're separated, Mary gets pregnant. All right? How does she get pregnant? It says, before they came together. So Joseph wasn't the biological father of Jesus. But Mary wasn't unfaithful. Jesus wasn't an illegitimate child. Why? Because it says she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is something supernatural about this baby that is different than every other baby that's been born ever in the history of this world. Now for the Jews, when they thought of the Spirit of God, they would think of the Spirit of God as someone who would create and recreate. All right? So, for instance, the same word in Hebrew for spirit is the same word that we have breath, all right? So you breathe life, all right? So in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks creation, speaks the world to existence. And then in verse 2, the spirit is there hovering. So the spirit is part of breathing creation into order, giving life. And this is critical to know that the spirit is now giving life to the Messiah, There's something that we learn from that for what Jesus' purpose was all about. We learn that Jesus came to this earth to restore life to dead souls. Jesus came to restore life or to bring life to dead souls. He came with the power to recreate life. That's amazing. 
Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus has this interaction with Nicodemus. He's kind of this expert in the law. And he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, uh, I don't know how that works. Doesn't feel like physically that's going to work. He says, no, no, you need to be born spiritually. You need to have a rebirth spiritual, spiritually. All right? So this is what the Spirit does. It brings life. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Our souls were dead. And how do we become alive? Through Christ. By grace. Like that's how we get new life. Through Christ. Through this baby that's not just a baby. All right? Paul says it this way in Romans 8. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the spirit's work is to bring life. It's bringing life into Mary. But what we learn from that is it can bring life to our dead souls when we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, this is incredible news for Mary, right? We find out in Luke that she treasures and she ponders this wonderful news in her heart, right? And it's awesome. It's not so awesome if you're Joseph, right? Whoa, wait a second. How'd you get pregnant? We haven't been together. We've been separated. Like, This is not cool, right? Let's see how he responds. Verses 19 through 21. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So here you got Joseph, a good guy, a righteous guy, trying to do the right thing because most people believe that she could have been stoned because of her unfaithfulness or perceived unfaithfulness. So he goes, hey, I'm just going to divorce you privately, quietly, and we're just going to move on and go our separate ways. And at that point, what happens is an angel appears to Joseph and says, Hey, no, no, don't operate your way. Just trust me. I want you to still take her as your wife. And then she's going to have a son. When she has a son, you're going to name him Jesus. Because he's going to save people from their sin. All right? So in this, he calls Joseph the son of David. Right? Again, this is talking about the genealogy from the human perspective. This is who, it's who Jesus is. Fully human. Right? Son of David, Son of God. He can redeem man and he can reign as king all at the same time. Now, he says, I want you to marry her and I want you to give the, when the son is born, I want you to name him Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation or for us, the Lord saves. Now, what is the Lord saving his people from? Their sins. If you're a Jew and you're under Roman oppression at this point, what are you hoping a Messiah is going to do? Save you from 
a political world, right? Save you from a government. Jesus did not come to save the Jews from the Romans. He doesn't come to save you from America. Jesus came to save you from your sins. His purpose in coming was not a political purpose. It was not a social purpose. It was a spiritual purpose. And then we find this out in Acts chapter 4. Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no way for you to be saved from your sin apart from Jesus. Yet we spend our lives trying to do so many other things to save ourselves from our sins. But the beauty of Jesus is he said, no, no, I came to save you from your sins. It's an amazing truth. So Jesus came to bring life to your dead soul. He came to save you from your sins. What hope comes from Jesus here? Isn't that incredible? Because some of you think, I'm so far from God. I am too dead for God to love me. If God can miraculously put a baby that's more than a baby into a human lady, he can miraculously change your life. And some of you in this room, you go, yeah, because he's done that in my own life. I was dead and now I'm alive only because of Jesus. What hope fills this truth, right? Verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what Matthew does here is he quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That was written hundreds of years before. So again, if you're one of those... If you're a Jew and you're like, we're looking for the Messiah and Matthew is trying to prove that he's the Messiah, he goes, hey, one of your own prophets said this and now it's coming true. Like there's going to be a virgin, she's going to give birth to a baby and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And they didn't speak Hebrew in the New Testament, they're predominantly speaking Greek, so he translates it for them. Emmanuel simply means God with us. Why does God need to come be with us? Because since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, we have been separated from our God. And we try to work to get back to God. We try all these things to get us back to God. But the only way to get back into a relationship, reconciled into a relationship with our Creator God, is by God coming to be with us, not us being able to get to God. And how does God come to be with us? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus comes. Like, Jesus is his name. Christ is his title, like Savior, Messiah. But the role that he was to fulfill was God coming to be with us, Emmanuel. This incredible news. Incredible news. Jesus was not just another baby, but he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of a virgin. He had an earthly father. He was fulfillment of centuries-old prophecies. He was the Messiah, and he was God coming to mankind. So that means that he's more than a mere human. He's more than a wise prophet. He's more than a good teacher. He's more than a political savior. He's more than just your friend. He's more than just somebody to help you when you're down. He's more 
than kind of a trinket that you kind of keep in your pocket. And then when you get kind of bored with the rest of life or life gets really hard, you go, oh, I need Jesus now. He's so much more than that, guys. And that's what the birth of Jesus is telling us. He is the only one who can resurrect your soul. He is the only one who can save you from your sins. And he is the only way for your sins to be paid for properly. God coming to this earth, living a perfect holy life and giving up his life for you. That's who Jesus is. We've got to quit treating Jesus as less than that. But for many of you in this room, you need to remember what hope we have in Jesus. You're not too far gone. These are incredible truths, but when Jesus is born, how did people respond here in Matthew? Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So wise men from the east, you may also know them as magi, right? They've come from a different place, and they've seen a star, because... Possibly they were like magicians, but most likely they were astrologers. So they would pay attention to the skies, the stars, everything. And what they believed is that when a new star popped up that they had never seen before, they believed that some, somebody significant had been born. So they see this star rise up. And they're going to go and try to figure out, hey, who's the significant person that's been born? And it says they went to worship. They went to pay homage to this person. And what you have in these wise men were not Jews because Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He came for the whole world. And you're going to see that all the way through Matthew. You get to the end of Matthew and the last thing that Jesus tells his disciples is go make disciples of what? All nations. So from the beginning you have the nations coming to Jesus. And at the end is hey we need to go make disciples so all the nations are worshiping Jesus. That's what this is about. So they see the star and they want to worship. It's incredible. Verse 3, though, is quite different. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So the wise men come to worship, yet Herod is troubled by the birth of this baby. Why? All throughout the New Testament, when you see the word troubled, it means that to strike fear. Or somebody to be confused or startled. Or they were dreading something. It's kind of the word picture of like uh, water being stirred up and agitated. So something happened in Herod that was agitating him because of the birth of this baby. All right. So at one point the disciples in the New Testament, they are uh, looking out and they're on the lake. And they're scared to death because they think they see a ghost. Because somebody is walking on the water to them. And it said they were troubled. Same idea. And who was walking on the water? Jesus was walking on the water to them. So that same idea that they saw something that startled them, that confused them, that they were scared of, and they were troubled by it. In 1 Peter 3, what you have is Peter writing and said, I don't want you to be troubled by your persecutors. 
Don't be scared of them. Don't dread them. Don't be fearful of them. Now, some of you are going, I don't understand how a baby could stir up and agitate something like this. That's because you don't have multiple kids at your house, all right? (laughs) Now, as you know, if you've brought one kid home from the hospital, how does your other kids act when a new baby is brought in? I remember one of our kids, we brought home from the hospital, and I got the hardest kick in the shin, like within five minutes of bringing the baby home. Why? Because the siblings, the new baby was a threat to the siblings' kingdom. Right? No, this is my house. I own all these toys. I get the attention from mom and dad. Not anymore, right? This little baby is a threat. This little baby Jesus, who is the king of kings, is an absolute threat to Herod, right? And he's troubled by it. Now, why was he such a threat? If you look back in history, Herod was a decent guy at times, enacted a lot of great policies that kind of fueled economic growth. He's kind of a good, good guy in those regards. Now, he was known as a Roman Jewish client king. That means he wasn't Roman. He would claim to be a Jew, but he didn't really follow the Jewish customs and the laws of that time so what would happen is he had this pretty good relationship with the roman government okay it was like they kind of lived in harmony and they said hey we're gonna put you in charge of the jews we're gonna let you kind of rule over them to keep peace between us because we we don't have the best relationship so you're just gonna kind of rule over them and as you do just keep the peace and make sure this goes well all right now decades before the roman senate Gave him a title, though, because he kind of oversaw the Jews. You know what the title they gave him was? Herod, you're going to be king of the Jews. So when the wise men show up, and they're saying, Hey, we saw this star. Tell us where the king of the Jews is. Herod doesn't say it in the moment, but I'm pretty sure he's going, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? There's a threat to my kingdom? And he's startled and he's struck with dread and fear that his kingdom may be under attack. Do you feel threatened by King Jesus because you really like your kingdom? Because you like sitting on the throne of your life? Because it's going to be troubling when you hear that he is the only one, he is the only king, he is the king of kings. And two opposing kings cannot sit on the same throne. You cannot sit on the throne of your life and have King Jesus on the throne of your life. He doesn't operate that way. He doesn't operate that way. Later on we find out that Herod, because he had, when every time he had a rival that he thought was going to, take over his throne. He had 46 members of the Sanhedrin put to death. He had his own mother-in-law put to death. He had his wife and two sons put to death. And then later on, we're going to find out that he had a lot more babies put to death because he liked his kingdom more than the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. And uh, when you think of 
Jesus bringing life to dead souls. That's that's thrilling for most people that go, man, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. That's not thrilling news. That's threatening news for people who try to find life somewhere outside of Jesus, though. When you try to find life in the pleasures of this world, the success, the influence, the possessions you have in this life, and that's where you're trying like, oh, I'm going to find life for my dead soul in that kind of stuff. Man, that's a kingdom that you're building. It's not Jesus' kingdom. And Jesus, at one point, he was interacting in, uh, I think, Matthew chapter 19 with what we know as the rich young ruler. And it's this, Really sad story because this rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus one day. And as he comes to Jesus, he's like, hey, how can I have eternal life? Jesus tells him, hey, have you done this commandment? Have you done this, that? He's like, oh, yeah, I've done all those things. And then Jesus says, what I want you to really do is go sell your possessions and give it to the poor. Now, the whole point of that story is not that we just need to sell all our possessions and give it to the poor. Unless unless that's your idol. Unless that's your whole heart. Because Jesus is after every part of your life. Not you just following a few commands, but you following everything. So it says the rich young ruler turns away and walks away sorrowful. He walks away sad because he said, oh, I've done all this, but I'm unwilling to give up this part of my life. Because he was finding life for his dead soul in something other than Jesus. Where are you trying to find life? Possessions will not resurrect your soul. Only Jesus can do that. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, there we go. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world And forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. Jesus didn't come so that you would forfeit your soul. He came so that your soul would be resurrected. For his sake. There's so many ways that we try to find life. We try to save ourselves from our own kingdoms. We try to establish our own kingdoms. And when King Jesus steps on the scene, we have to relinquish our own kingdoms. We have to. Some of you are trying to establish your own kingdom and get back to God through your own morality. Well, I'm a really good person. I do the right things. Some of you try to get back to God and reestablish that relationship with God by, by just doing a bunch of religious activity. Oh, I go to church. That's what's going to get me back to God. No, it's not. It's going to leave you dead in your sins and trespasses if not for Jesus bringing you back to God. But my mom and dad are Christians. My grandparents are Christians. Your grandparents don't have any ability to resurrect your soul. Neither do your parents. Only Jesus can do that. So if you're feeling troubled and threatened by King Jesus, my encouragement is to lay down your life. Give up your kingdom. Give up your ambitions. Give up your plans for the sake of Jesus. 
So let's see how Herod continues to respond in verses 4 through 6. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Again, Matthew's quoting a prophet. He's quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2 right here. And he's saying, This is where the Messiah is coming from. You're looking for the Messiah, Jews. Your own prophet said he was going to come out of Bethlehem. That small Bethlehem town is now going to have more honor because a ruler, a king, is going to come out of that town. And he's going to shepherd all of Israel. Bethlehem was known as the city of David, right? So now the Messiah is going to come out of the city of David. He's a son of David. And he's going to rule like King David as a ruler and shepherd over his people. Then verses 7 through 12. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I don't know how rejoicing gets any better with that than rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So what's happening here? Herod's going, hey, wise man, I want you to come over here. I'm going to tell you something in secret. And what I'm going to tell you is this. When you find a Christ, I want you to come back and tell me where he is. Because I want to go worship him. Yeah, right. I want to go kill him because he's a threat to my kingdom. I don't, I don't want to go worship him. So they go find, they see where the star is and they go find Jesus. And what do these wise men do? They humble themselves, they fall down, and they worship Jesus. And they have all these gifts that are meant for a king, that are meant for a significant person. And they open up all their treasures, and they give them to Jesus because he's worthy. Because they recognize that this baby is different than every, every other baby that's been born. They are absolutely thrilled with the birth of Jesus. Because they recognize who he actually is. But an angel warns them, hey, don't go back to Herod. Go a different way home. Because he's he's not pure in his motives here. Then verses 13 through 15. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So once again, another prophecy being fulfilled. So if you're a Jew, you're like, wait, all these prophecies are coming to be fulfilled in this baby. Born in Bethlehem, because out of Egypt earlier, one of your prophets said he was going to come out of Egypt. So how does he come out of Egypt and Bethlehem? Because they had to flee early on to Egypt because Herod was going to kill him. So he was born in Bethlehem, he lived in Egypt, and then later on lived in Nazareth. So we hear of Jesus of Nazareth. That's how all this is pieced together. So, verse 16, you get kind of the climax of Herod's response. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod is so angry about this new king in town. He's angry that he's been tricked by the wise men. And what does he do? I've got to double down on my kingdom. I've got to protect my kingdom at all costs. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ensure that this baby Jesus is going to be killed. And the only way that I can ensure that that happens is I'm going to kill every baby boy two years and under. And he does it. Because he loved his kingdom that much. Guys, what are we learning here about the birth of Jesus? Jesus' birth reveals salvation for your sins and a threat to your kingdom. Jesus' birth reveals salvation for your sin and a threat to your kingdom. How are you going to respond this morning? Will you respond like the wise men? Will you be thrilled about Jesus? Man, he has rescued me when I was dead. He saved me from my sins. He's the only one that can bring me back to God. And just humble yourself and worship. Give your life and say, you can have it all. Because that's how great Jesus is. Or will you be troubled like Herod this morning? Because Jesus is a threat to your own kingdom. And then will you double down on your kingdom? Will you try to protect your kingdom at all cost? And in the midst of that, forfeit your soul. Jesus' birth shows, man, as sinners we have so much hope. And as kings of our own kingdom, we have a great threat. What will you do this morning? Be thrilled? Or you be troubled. My hope is that as a church, we would be absolutely thrilled with Jesus. That we would humble ourselves and we would not make a big deal about us, but we would make a big deal about the King of Kings. That we would go, I don't want, need to be on a throne. I don't want to be on a throne because I don't have the ability to save. I want Jesus to be on the throne of my life forever. That's the kind of church we want to be. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth this morning. Thank you for the reminders about Jesus' birth. Father, I confess that oftentimes I think of Jesus as something less than what we've talked about this morning. God, may I always see Jesus as high and lifted up seated on the throne at the right hand of you, the Father. And may our church be known as a group of people who live that way. Who lay down our kingdoms every single day for the sake of you, King Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.